Amen. Well, my name is Avinash. I'm super excited to be here with you again, uh, this time to bring God's word. And I'm also excited that this is family worship where we get to sit together as a family. I love that. Uh, so before, we, before I start pray, uh, preaching, just pray with me. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this opportunity to come together as a church and especially as a family. We thank you that we have the provision to hear from you. And I pray that you would make your message clear to us today. Give us the focus to listen and most importantly, give us courage to apply all that you teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Foundations. A few days ago, a friend of mine um, was super excited to buy his first house with his wife after they've been married uh, for a few years. So they went looking and they found this amazing property. It had this huge garden. It has an amazing front porch. It had a spacious kitchen. It was in an amazing community and it had all the works. Of course, it had a few tweaks that they had to work on, but uh, most importantly, it was affordable. And we all know in this current market, this is a godsend. So they sent in an offer and a few days later, the offer got accepted and they were so excited and they were dreaming of all the furnishings that they wanted to do to the place. Fast forward one week later, this friend and his wife were sitting in the couch, their heads hanging low in disappointment. Why? You see, the inspection report had come and that revealed that the house had serious issues with its foundation. Now you and I, we all know how important a foundation is to a house, right? It's what, what keeps the house together, what keeps it in its place. And realtors will let you know that if they have a house that has damaged foundations, that it's almost unsellable. And sports instructors and coaches know how important it is to build foundational skills before you attempt something complex or complex strategies. Even musicians know that it's important to have foundational technique in place before you try to attempt to play jazz fusion or prog rock, right? School teachers know how valuable it is to have foundations built in to kids that when they grow, they can build on these foundations so that they can understand complex uh, concepts and ideas. Even trees. The very reason they are able to withstand hurricanes is because of their strong foundations, their roots. Foundations. It's super important and we all recognize that. But what can we do when these foundations are attacked? What can Christians do when our foundational beliefs are under attack? For example, the rainbow which was supposed to remind all of us of God's covenantal love, that he's never going to send a flood ever again, is today the symbol of the pride community. What can you do when God's covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is no longer the accepted norm in society? You see, we live in a world where our foundations are constantly being attacked through media, through movies, through songs, and sometimes even through politics. 
I know, I know a lot of us here and those of us watching online have experienced these attacks on a personal level. People in our workplaces, in our schools, our colleges may have attacked us for having these old, archaic Christian values. And I know everyone here has faced attacks in their dependence and trust in God by the enemy through temptations, through that one habitual sin that's always staring down at you and taunting you each time you try, you try to overcome it. It leaves you feeling empty, feeling vulnerable and helpless. When our foundations are attacked, we feel empty, vulnerable and helpless. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that is the question we're going to study today. And that is the exact question that the psalmist is asked in Psalm 11, verse 3. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We all know that there are certain topics that the Bible doesn't directly address. It has principles that it talks about. But isn't it amazing that the psalmist asks, is asked the exact question that we and the culture is asking 2,000 years later. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So we will explore an answer to this question in three steps. First, we look at what is the problem? Second, we look at what is the psalmist's solution to the problem? And third, we will look at what is the application? And when we do this, the psalmist will remind us that when our foundations are broken, he reminds us that we have a sovereign savior. We have a sovereign savior. So this brings me to my first point. When our foundations are broken, we need to recognize that the enemy attacks our foundations. The enemy attacks our foundations. So if you turn with me to Psalm 11, the last uh, part of verse 1 goes like this. Flee, to the, flee like a bird to the mountains. Flee like a bird to the mountains. Now this is a command that is spoken by, uh, this is a Psalm of David. So David's friends are speaking, are commanding David to run, to flee to the mountains like a bird. Now, we are not told what circumstance David is in, but he's in some sort of a fix. And uh, his friends who understand this in, his, in their panic and in their sense of urgency are urging David to run away. There is no point in staying and fighting. They want him to run. This is their flight response that they want him to do. And how they want him to retreat is like someone who's running to save themselves. And the reason they say this is because of what happens in verse 2. For look, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. In other words, they're saying, you better run now because the wicked have taken aim. They have seen you in their scope. They're locked and loaded and they're going to pull the trigger anytime now. His friends can see that red dot, laser spot on, wicked, on David's forehead and they want him to run. They want him to flee because his life is in danger. Now, these are some loyal friends. They've got David's back. 
His, these are David's loyal uh, supporters. Now, who are these wicked? In the psalm, the wicked ones are characterized as those uh, who are contrasted with the righteous. These are those whose destiny is divine destruction. These are those who enjoy to do wickedness. They enjoy to attack the righteous and the innocent. These are those who are deceptive. And in contrast, the upright in heart or the righteous are those who experience God's deliverance, those who rejoice in God's presence, those who rejoice to obey God's commandments. These are those who would enjoy and, uh, and can hope to see God's favor in their life. And the setting we have here is the imagery of a hunter and a prey. The hunters are hiding in ambush, they're lurking in the dark, and the prey cannot see where the next attack is going to come from. And the prey in this instance is a bird. So the bird is going to do everything possible to escape imminent death. It's going to dodge leaves, it's going to swerve under branches, it's going to change the direction quickly, and it's doing everything possible to save itself. This is the imagery of, of swift escape, the flight response. Now, to give an example of what this looks like, think of a dad when his child comes to him and says, Dad, my best friend is gay, and he says he likes me. And mom told me to come to you to see what the Bible says about it. So the dad does everything possible to escape the situation. He avoids the question, he invalidates the son's question, and he changes topic. Swift escape. It's the idea of escaping and saving your life. And this is the only logical thing, according to uh, David's friends, to do because uh, of what uh, reason they have is because of uh, verse 3. They asked David, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When you don't have an army, when you don't have armor, when you don't have a line of defense, when you're singled out, when you're all on your own, when you don't know where the next attack is going to come from, what else can you do but run? It's logical. And the psalm here doesn't specifically mention what these foundations are that are destroyed, but it assumes that it's already happened or it's happening as we speak. As they speak, these foundations are being destroyed. Now, it's highly likely that these foundations are institutions or establishments in society that are put in place to protect the righteous. And these could be literal city gates, it could be city walls, or it can be the law and order system of a society that is uh, to maintain peace within a community. And one scholar puts it this way. He says, these enemies are not only enemies of the righteous, but they are pulling down all the institutions and good order of society. These institutions protect the right-minded righteous. When they are destroyed, the righteous are exposed to all kinds of violence. Friends, when I read this, this reminds me of what ha what's happening in our society right now. Is it just me or do you feel like our, the good orders of our society are crumbling around us? A self-centered, self-motivated, self-gratifying liberalism and an insensitive, uh, uh, incompassionate 
a loveless conservatism, both have caused widespread chaos in this country. The world doesn't know where to go or who to go for for truth. The church doesn't know who or how to love. The home which was supposed to be the model of Christ-like living is no longer a place of love and acceptance. The marriage bed is not pure. The teenage mind, which was supposed to be filled with energy and vibrancy for God, is adulterous. Childlike innocence is corrupted with an unnecessary overstimulation. The husband does not lead with selfless sacrifice. The wife does not respect in love. The child does not obey with joy. And the Christian does not know how to love their neighbor. This is the society that you and I live in today. This is our reality. And it's totally natural for us to feel vulnerable and helpless and scared. And this is exactly the reality that David's friends perceived. You see, they recognize that the enemy attacks our foundations. But that's not how David feels about the situation. He has a slightly different perspective. And this brings me to my second point. God is our sovereign foundation. God is our sovereign foundation. When his friends asked the question, what can the righteous do? David, instead of looking at the wicked, he points their attention to God. And he sees that there is this spiritual reality that overshadows and lies beyond this earthly reality. Look at what David says in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The imagery of the throne has this sense of royalty and power and ruling authority. And when taken together with its holiness and the fact that the Lord's throne is in heaven, it speaks of God's ultimate transcendence and his greatness and his glory and his majesty. This is a foundation that no arrow on, on earth can reach. This is a foundation that does not bow down to the authority of man. This is a foundation that has ultimate power and authority. This is a foundation that is not intimidated by predators seemingly lurking in the dark. Verse 4 continues to say, His eyes behold, his eyes see. And the tense of that verb there has this idea of continuous habitual action. In other words, what it's saying is, God's eyes continuously and habitually always see. God's eyes, God is always looking at what is transpiring here on earth. And in this case, God is always looking at what's happening to David, the opposition that he's facing. God's eyes are not affected by this darkness that affects the righteous. David is emphasizing that while man cannot see the enemies hidden in the darkness, God can see these enemies hidden in the darkness because God is sovereign. He's transcendent. Now his eyes are not only seeing, 
the verse continues to say, his gaze examines humankind. And again, the sense of gazing is this continuous habitual sense. God is constantly gazing. He's constantly examining. He's constantly testing. Now, James reminds us that God does not tempt, but God tests us. God is constantly examining the inner motives of our heart. This is a darkness that even the wicked cannot see. God is our sovereign foundation. Now, David gets even more specific. In verse 5, he says, The Lord tests or examines the righteous and the wicked. Now, this is interesting. To get to David's friends, the, the righteous, they cannot see the, the wicked, but the wicked can see them. But David is telling them, brothers, though that's the reality, our God in heaven can see all of us. Though he is far removed from us in his transcendent glory and majesty, he is still closer to us than anybody can ever be. He knows our inner thoughts and our motives. He knows us far deeper than anyone can. And this is comforting to me, and at the same time, it's a sobering thought for me. It's comforting to know that God watches what's going on in this world, that God sees uh, the, the wickedness that's happening in this place. But at the same time, it's sobering because God is also examining my heart. God is seeing what's going on in my heart. And this is true throughout the Bible. God uses the same yardstick that he uses for Israel as he does with the pagans. What he uses for the church is what he uses for the unchurched as well. So friends, let's be comforted in this truth to know that when we face opposition for our Christian values, God sees that. When you are verbally abused or attacked at school or at work or in college, God sees your hurt. God knows that pain. And this is the truth that David is reminding us but at the same time, if you are the one who is attacking others, God sees that too. We may very easily justify our actions, but God is always examining our hearts. Now, granted, God is not a divine hall monitor who's waiting for you to fall so that he can cast judgment. No, that's not who our God is. But let us not fool ourselves into thinking that just because God is loving and patient and kind, that at the same time, he is not righteous and just. If you are a father who is not building godly foundations at home, and if you are allowing the enemy to destroy whatever is left, God is watching. If you are wearing your opinions on your sleeve at the expense of Christian witness, God sees that. If you are more than happy to settle for division as opposed to doing the hard work of making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace in the church, God sees that. I too often, very often fool myself into thinking that when I'm on my phone, when I'm scrolling uh, Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or what have you, I fool myself into thinking that God is not watching. But God sees. God examines our motives. 
David now moves on to talk about how God deals with the wicked. Verse 5 continues this way. And his soul hates the lover of violence. His soul hates the lover of violence. When David uses the word soul, he's talking about God's entire being as a whole person. And he says that his very inmost being despises the wicked. His nature is to judge and punish the wicked, those who do ungodly deeds. That's his nature. And the reality is, friends, you and I once were wicked. You and I were once enemies of God. But it's because of Christ's atoning work, his blood that was shed on the cross and his death and resurrection, because of our faith in him, we have now been called the righteous. And praise God for that, the fact that we have a relationship with him. Now what David does next, something that's very interesting and significant for us, having recognized God's just character, in verse 6, David proceeds to call down a curse upon the wicked. Now some translations that you may have may translate this as just a statement implying the fate, implying what's going to happen in the future. For example, some of our translations may read, um, on the wicked, he will rain coals of sulfur, or let him rain coals of sulfur. But other translations capture David's emotion and his passion better when it translates them as a curse. For example, the net translation has it this way. May he rain down burning coals and brimstone on the wicked. A whirlwind is what they deserve. David's passion is starting to show. His zeal for God is starting to show. And this is the same passion we see when we are first introduced to David in the Bible in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17 when he goes up against Goliath. When he sees this giant defying God, you see David spurned and burning with anger, wanting to do something, wanting to take action. So briefly turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45, and let's see what he says. Let's see what the narrator speaks of David. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into, this, into our hand. Look at the details here. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies to the birds of the air. This is, this is graphic detail. And this is the same amount of detail that we see in the psalm. May he rain down burning coals. Imagine rain of burning coals. And brimstone. And a whirlwind of heat. Scorching heat. This is graphic. And in this, in First Samuel, again, he says that the Lord does not save by sword or spear. 
That's what he says in the psalm. David is not afraid of these arrows that are coming at him in the darkness. And what's really important for us to understand here is two different things. Two things. First, implications or cursing was not personal vindictiveness. It's not the fight response. David does not call down a curse upon his enemies just because he's been personally offended. We don't pray and ask God to hurt our enemies just because we've been offended or hurt. The reason in the Psalms or in the Old Testament, the way cursing worked was so that when God punishes the wicked, the pagan nations will see that act of judgment and recognize that there is a God of justice. They will see that and recognize that there is a God who is righteous, who fights for the, for the oppressed. Secondly, an imprecation or a curse in the Bible was always recognized as God taking the action. David asks God to bring the judgment. David does not take up arms and do the punishing. David is passionate for God's justice. Friends, you and I, we may be passionate for God's justice. But when we look through the lens of the New Testament to see how Jesus, what Jesus teaches, he does not ask us to bring down curses. He asks us to bless our enemies. In fact, we are explicitly told not to curse our enemies, but to bless them and to pray for them. You see, our conduct of love for the enemies is what the world needs to see and recognize that there is a God in this place. Our conduct of love for one another. Our wishes for God's justice upon the oppressed can and only sh should only remain in the realm of prayer, not in the realm of action. The realm of action is reserved for God. Now, it's so easy for me to, became, to become enraged and with those who physically abuse the oppressed, it's very easy for me to get angry and to inappropriately take matters into my own hands. But the Bible challenges you and I, challenges us to take our righteous indignation to God in prayer and for us to take that one step further and to pray for them, to pray for our enemies, to pray that they would see the truth. And that's very hard for me. When was the last time you prayed for someone you disagreed with? When was the last time you prayed for someone who rubbed you the wrong way? When was the last time you prayed for our liberal or conservative fellow image bearers? Do we pray for those people on social media who push all of our buttons? When we see oppressors oppress the innocent, God welcomes us to bring our anger into him in his presence through prayer. And and that is the heart of David. That reflects the heart of David, to go to God when we are angry. But Jesus in the New Testament challenges us to go one step further, to pray for them, to bless them, to pray that they would come to see the truth. And how we do that is important. Now, having spoken about the wicked, David now turns to talk about the hope for the righteous, what the righteous can expect. So in verse 7, he says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves 
righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Now, as much as God's righteousness despises wickedness, at the same time, the same righteousness loves godly deeds. Now, in, in the, the, word, the word love in verse 7 is used contrastively with the word hate in verse 5. So, if the extent of God's hate for the wicked is as far as the east is from the west, at the same time, the extent of God's love for the righteous is as far as the west is from the east. Same intensity, different directions. God loves those who do righteous deeds. This metaphorical language of seeing God's face, beholding God's face, implies that the godly will experience God's favor. They will experience and enjoy his presence. This is the hope that David had, and this is the same hope that you and I have in the New Testament that's promised to us. Quickly, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul reminds us of this same hope that David had, that we can have as believers in Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'm reading from verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. Now this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, God's action, and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will suffer the punish punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Paul is referring to Jesus' second coming, that when Jesus comes again, God is going to do his action of avenging. He's going to punish the wicked, but the righteous, we can expect to marvel at him. We can expect to see him face to face. This is the same hope that David had, that you and I can have as well. When our foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David responds by reminding us that God is our sovereign foundation. The wicked will face God's wrath and we can hope and to expect to enjoy God's favor and see him face to face. Now we've seen that the enemy attacks our foundation, that God is our sovereign foundation, but how is David able to say this? Where is David getting this perspective from? Where is he getting this confidence from? And this brings me to the big idea of today. If there's one thing I need you to hear from me, if you haven't heard anything I've said so far, it's just one, one sentence. Seek refuge in the sovereign foundation. Seek refuge in the sovereign foundation. In verse 1, we see David, let's go back to Psalm 11. In verse 1, we see David make this statement. In the Lord, I take refuge. 
David speaks because his confidence is in where he stands, where his position is. His confidence comes from being in God's presence. His confidence comes from taking refuge in God. Now, the verb to seek refuge has this sense of an implication of loyalty. David's confidence in the Lord's presence is because he is loyal to God, not loyal to any other institution, loyal to God. And this loyalty also has this sense uh, of understanding and recognizing that God is loyal to him. David recognized that it was God who helped him kill the lions and the bears and Goliath. And he recognizes that it is this same God who would help him against these arrows that are coming at him at the dark, in the darkness. Abiding in God is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. It's when we are in God's presence, when we see his face, is where we find strength to face the day. When earthly foundations fail, we can have confidence in our heavenly fortress. Also, David's running to God is almost a knee-jerk response. It's, it's just his natural thing that he does, to run to God immediately. Is that our knee-jerk response? When we face opposition, when, we, when somebody riles us up because of our faith, is our knee-jerk response to run to God? Or do we run to our vices? Since the truth is we will not seek refuge in this God if we don't know who this God is. We, we, we won't go if we don't trust him. We won't be sitting in these chairs if we didn't think that they can hold our weight, right? We won't take our car to a mechanic if we don't trust them. When we don't recognize ability, we will not trust their capacity. If we don't know who our God is, we won't run to him. And the only way for us to know him is to go to him, is to run to him, is to spend some time with him in prayer, in reading the Bible, in coming together as a family, at home, at church, our small groups, spending time with him. And a pastor recently told us that we cannot survive as Christians by simply having glimpses of Jesus every single day. We, we need to stop and gaze at Jesus. We need to spend time with him. We need to look at him and spend time in silence. And our God is all the more faithful to draw near to us. He promises to draw near to us when we draw near to him. And if you've never had a relationship with God, if you don't know who he is, I want to encourage you to seek a relationship with this sovereign foundation. And God is, his will is for all to come to him. His will is for all to seek him in, gentle, in a sense of dependence. And I believe a great way to remind us to seek the sovereign foundation is to set triggers to set trigger reminders, I have an alarm on my phone that rings at 11.01 a.m. every day to remind me of Psalm 11, verse 1, to seek refuge in the sovereign foundation. And I encourage you 
to set reminders on your phones. It's as simple as that. We, as humans, who are constantly thinking of all the things that we need to do in the day, we need to be reminded to slow down and to make time to gaze at God. Another great way to set reminders is to think of triggers. What are certain landmarks, specific landmarks that you see every day? Is it a specific tree that you walk by as you go to work or school or class? Is it a specific exit sign that you always see on your way to work? And we have these triggers. Whenever we gather and sit at the table before food, we are automatically, we start praying. So think of triggers like that. Things that you see on a regular basis. It can even be when you pick up your toothbrush every morning. Set triggers in your life to remind you to seek refuge in the sovereign foundation. The question we've been asking today is when our foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And David encourages us that we can seek refuge in the sovereign foundation. So as we, as we see our foundations fail and fall around us now and in the days to come, like David, we can have the confidence to say, in the Lord, I have taken refuge. May one of the songs in our mixtape this season, in the summer, be to seek refuge in the sovereign foundation. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come into your presence. We thank you that you have promised us that when the world around us crumbles, when our foundations are being destroyed and attacked, that you are our sovereign foundation, that you see all that's happening to us, and you examine our hearts, and you challenge us to love our enemies, so that in doing that, they may see that you exist, that you are a God who loves, that you are a God who cares for what's happening in this earth. God, give us the boldness to set reminders every day to seek you, to seek our sovereign foundation. And we can only do this, God. We can only do this through the help of your spirit, who you so graciously, generously have given us, that we are not on our own, that we have the church, and most importantly, we have you to help us to live for you and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.